the red silk scarf. He looked at Ganimard to see what impression his speech had produced on the inspector. Ganimard did not depart from his attitude of silence. Lupin began to laugh. <laughs> as a matter of fact, you're annoyed and surprised, but you're suspicious as well. Why should that confounded Lupin hand the business over to me, say you, instead of keeping it for himself, hunting down the murderer, and rifling his pockets if there was a robbery? The question is quite logical, of course, but there is a but. I have no time, you see. I'm full up with work at the present moment. A burglary in London, another at Lausanne, an exchange of children at Marseille, to say nothing of having to save a young girl who is at this moment shadowed by death. That's always the way. It never rains, but it pours. So I say to myself, suppose I handed the business over to my dear old Ganimar. Now that it's half solved for him, he is quite capable of succeeding. And what a service I shall be doing him. How magnificently he will be able to distinguish himself. No sooner said than done. At eight o'clock in the morning, I sent the joker with the orange peel to meet you. You swallowed the bait, and you were here by nine, all on edge and eager for the fray. Lupin rose from his chair. He went over to the inspector and, with his eyes in Ganimard's, said, That's all. You know the whole story. Presently you will know the victim. Some ballet dancer, probably. Some singer at a music hall. On the other hand, the chances are that the criminal lives near the Pont Neuf, most likely on the left bank. Lastly, here are all the exhibits. I make you a present of them. Set to work. I shall only keep this end of the scarf. If ever you want to piece the scarf together, bring me the other end, the one which the police will find round the victim's neck. Bring it to me in four weeks from now to the day, that is to say, on the 29th of December at 10 o'clock in the morning. You can be sure of finding me here. And don't be afraid, this is all perfectly serious, friend of my youth, I swear it is. No humbug, honor bright. You can go straight ahead. Oh, by the way, when you arrest the fellow with the eyeglass, be a bit careful, he's left-handed. Goodbye, old dear, and good luck to you. Lupin spun round on his heel, went to the door, opened it, and disappeared before Ganimar had even thought of taking a decision. The inspector rushed after him, but at once found that the handle of the door, by some trick of mechanism which he did not know, refused to turn. It took him ten minutes to unscrew the lock, and ten minutes more to unscrew the lock of the hall door. By the time he had scrambled down the three flights of stairs, Ganimar had given up all hope of catching Arsène Lupin. Besides, he was not thinking of it. Lupin inspired him with a queer, complex feeling, made up of fear, hatred, involuntary admiration, and also the vague instinct that he, Ganimar, in spite of all his efforts, in spite of the persistency of his endeavors, would never get the better of this particular adversary. He pursued him from a sense of duty and pride, but with the continual dread of being taken in by that formidable hoaxer and scouted and fooled in the face of a public that was always only too willing to laugh at the chief inspector's mishaps. This business of the red scarf in particular struck him as most suspicious. It was interesting, certainly, in more ways than one, but so very improbable. And Lupin's explanation, apparently so logical, would never stand the test of a severe examination. 
No, said Ganimar, this is all swank, a parcel of suppositions and guesswork based upon nothing at all. I'm not to be caught with chaff. When he reached the headquarters of police at 36 Quai des Orfèvres, he had quite made up his mind to treat the incident as though it had never happened. He went up to the criminal investigation department. Here, one of his fellow inspectors said, Seen the chief? No. He was asking for you just now. Oh, was he? Yeah. Yes, you had better go after him. Where? To the Rue de Berne. There was a murder there last night. Oh? Who's the victim? I don't know exactly. A music hall singer, I believe. Ganimard simply muttered, By Jove. Twenty minutes later, he stepped out of the underground railway station and made for the Rue de Berne. The victim, who was known in the theatrical world by her stage name of Jenny Saphir, occupied a small flat on the second floor of one of the houses. A policeman took the chief inspector upstairs and showed him the way through two sitting rooms to a bedroom where he found the magistrates in charge of the inquiry, together with the divisional surgeon and Monsieur Dudouis, the head of the detective service. Ganimard started at the first glance which he gave into the room. He saw, lying on the sofa, the corpse of a young woman whose hands clutched a strip of red silk. One of the shoulders, which appeared above the low-cut bodice, wore the marks of two wounds surrounded with clotted blood. The distorted and almost blackened features still bore an expression of frenzied terror. The divisional surgeon, who had just finished his examination, said, My first conclusions are very clear. The victim was twice stabbed with a dagger and afterwards strangled. The immediate cause of death was asphyxia. By Jove, thought Ganimard again, remembering Lupin's words and the picture which he had drawn of the crime. The examining magistrate objected. But the neck shows no discoloration. She may have been strangled with a napkin or a handkerchief, said the doctor. Most probably, said the chief detective, with this silk scarf, which the victim was wearing and a piece of which remains, as though she had clung to it with her two hands to protect herself. But why does only that piece remain? asked the magistrate. What has become of the other? The other may have been stained with blood and carried off by the murderer. You can plainly distinguish the hurried slashing of the scissors. You can plainly distinguish the hurried slashing of the scissors. By Jove, said Ganimar between his teeth for the third time, that brood of a lupin saw everything without seeing a thing. And what about the motive of the murder? asked the magistrate. The locks have been forced, the cupboards turned upside down. Have you anything to tell me, Monsieur Dudouis? The chief of the detective service replied, I can at least suggest a supposition, derived from the statements made by the servant. The victim, who enjoyed a greater reputation on account of her looks than through her talent as a singer, went to Russia two years ago and brought back with her a magnificent sapphire which she appears to have received from some person of importance at the court. Since then, she went by the name of Jenny Saphir, and seems generally to have been very proud of that present, although, for prudence' sake, she never wore it. I dare say that we shall not be far out if we presume the theft of the sapphire to have been the cause of the crime. But did the maid know where the stone was? No, 
Nobody did, and the disorder of the room would tend to prove that the murderer did not know either. We will question the maid, said the examining magistrate. Monsieur Dudouis took the chief inspector aside and said, You're looking very old-fashioned, Ganimard. What's the matter? Do you suspect anything? Nothing at all, chief. That's a pity. We could do with a bit of showy work in the departments. This is one of a number of crimes, all of the same class, of which we have failed to discover the perpetrator. This time we want the criminal, and quickly. A difficult job, chief. It's got to be done. Listen to me, Ganimard. According to what the maid says, Jenny Saffir led a very regular life. For a month past, she was in the habit of frequently receiving visits on her return from the music hall, that is to say, about half-past ten, from a man who would stay until midnight or so. He's a society man, Jenny Saffir used to say, and he wants to marry me. This society man took every precaution to avoid being seen, such as turning up his collar coat and lowering the brim of his hat when he passed the porter's box. And Jenny Saffir always made a point of sending away her maid even before he came. This is the man whom we have to find. Has he left no traces? None at all. It is obvious that we're dealing with a very clever scoundrel who prepared his crime beforehand and committed it with every possible chance of escaping unpunished. His arrest would be a great feather in our cap. I rely on you, Ganimard. Ah, you rely on me, chief, replied the inspector. Well, we shall see. I don't say no, only... He seemed in a very nervous condition, and his agitation struck Monsieur Dudouis. Only, continued Ganimard, only I swear. Do you hear, chief? I swear. What do you swear? Nothing. We shall see, chief. We shall see. Ganimard did not finish his sentence until he was outside, alone and he finished it aloud, stamping his foot, in a tone of the most violent anger. Only I swear to heaven that the arrest shall be effected by my own means, without my employing a single one of the clues with which that villain has supplied me. Oh no, oh no. Railing against Lupin, furious at being mixed up in this business, and resolved, nevertheless, to get to the bottom of it, he wandered aimlessly about the streets. His brain was seething with irritation, and he tried to adjust his ideas a little and to discover among the chaotic facts some trifling detail unperceived by all, unsuspected by Lupin himself, that might lead him to success. He lunched hurriedly at a bar, resumed his stroll, and suddenly stopped, petrified, astounded, and confused. He was walking under the gateway of the very house in the Rue de Surenne to which Lupin had enticed him a few hours earlier. A force stronger than his own will was drawing him there once more. The solution of the problem lay there. There, and there alone, were all the elements of the truth. Do and say what he would, Lupin's assertions were so precise, his calculations so accurate, that, worried to the innermost recesses of his being by so prodigious a display of perspicacity, he could not do other. Do and say what he would, Lupin's assertions were so precise, his calculations so accurate, that, worried to the innermost recesses of his being by so prodigious display of perspicacity, he could do nothing else but take up the work at the point where his enemy had left it. Abandoning all further resistance, he climbed the three flights of stairs. The door of the flat was open. No one had touched the exhibits. He put them in his pocket and walked away.
From that moment, he reasoned and acted, so to speak, mechanically, under the influence of the master whom he could not choose but obey. Admitting that the unknown person whom he was seeking lived in the neighborhood of the Pont Neuf, it became necessary to discover, somewhere between that bridge and the Rue de Berne, the first-class confectioner's shop open in the evenings at which the cakes were bought. This did not take long to find. A pastry cook near the Gare Saint-Lazare showed him some little cardboard boxes identical in material and shape with the one in Ganimard's possession. Moreover, one of the shop girls remembered having served on the previous evening a gentleman whose face was almost concealed in the collar of his fur coat, but whose eyeglass she had happened to notice. That's one clue checked, thought the inspector. Our man wears an eyeglass. He next collected the pieces of the racing paper and showed them to a news vendor who easily recognized the Turf Illustré. Ganimard at once went to the offices of the Turf and asked to see the list of subscribers. Going through the list, he jotted down the names and addresses of all those who lived anywhere near the Pont Neuf and principally, because Lupin had said so, those on the left bank of the river. He then went back to the criminal investigation department, took half a dozen men, and packed them off with the necessary instructions. At seven o'clock in the evening, the last of these men returned and brought good news with him. A certain Monsieur Prévailles, a subscriber to the turf, occupied an entresol flat on the Quai des Augustins. On the previous evening, he left his place wearing a fur coat, took his letters and his paper, the turf illustré, from the porter's wife, walked away and returned home at midnight. This Monsieur Prévailles wore a single eyeglass. He was a regular race-goer and himself owned several hacks, which he either rode himself or jobbed out. The inquiry had taken so short a time, and the results obtained were so exactly in accordance with Lupin's predictions, that Ganimard felt quite overcome on hearing the detective's report. Once more, he was measuring the prodigious extent of the resources at Lupin's disposal. Never in the course of his life, and Ganimard was already well advanced in years, had he come across such perspicacity, such a quick and far-seeing mind. He went in search of Monsieur Dudouis. Everything's ready, chief. Have you a warrant? Eh? I said everything is ready for the arrest, chief. You know the name of Jenny Saffer's murderer? You know the name of... You know the name of Jenny Saffer's murderer? Yes. But how? Explain yourself. Ganimard had a sort of scruple of conscience, blushed a little, and nevertheless replied, An accident, chief. The murderer threw everything that was likely to compromise him into the Seine. Part of the parcel was picked up and handed to me. By whom? A boatman, who refused to give his name for fear of getting into trouble. But I had all the clues I wanted. It was not so difficult as I expected and the inspector described how he had gone to work. "'And you call that an accident?' cried Monsieur Dudouis. "'And you say it was not difficult? Why, it's one of your finest performances. Finish it yourself, Ganimard, and be prudent.' Ganimard was eager to get the business done. He went to the Quai des Augustins with his men and distributed them around the house. He questioned the portress, who said that her tenants took his meals out of doors, but made a point of looking in after dinner. 
A little before nine o'clock, in fact, leaning out of her window, she warned Ganimard, who at once gave a low whistle. A gentleman in a tall hat and a fur coat was coming along the pavement beside the Seine. He crossed the road and walked up to the house. Ganimard stepped forward. Monsieur Prevay, I believe. Yes, but who are you? I have a commission to... He had no time to finish his sentence. At the sight of the men appearing out of the shadow, Prevay quickly retreated to the wall and faced his adversaries with his back to the door of a shop on the ground floor, the shutters of which were closed. Stand back! Stand back, he cried. I don't know you! His right hand brandished a heavy stick, while his left was slipped behind him and seemed to be trying to open the door. Genemar had an impression that the man might escape through this way and through some secret outlet. None of this nonsense, he said, moving closer to him. You're caught. You had better come quietly. But just as he was laying hold of Privai's stick, Genemar remembered the warning which Lupin gave him. Privai was left-handed, and it was his revolver for which he was feeling behind his back. The inspector ducked his head. He had noticed the man's sudden movement. Two reports rang out. No one was hit. A second later, Privai received a blow under the chin from the butt end of a revolver, which brought him down where he stood. He was entered at the depot soon after nine o'clock. Ganimar enjoyed a great reputation even at that time, but this capture, so quickly effected by such very simple means and at once made public by the police, won him a sudden celebrity. Privai was forthwith saddled with all the murders that had remained unpunished, and the newspapers vied with one another in extolling Ganimar's prowess.